Uh, my family is here. Uh, my mom and my dad and my sister and my almost-to-be brother-in-law. Um, they're sitting in the front row. I'm, like, really, really excited about that. Mostly because, um, so I, I don't know if many of you know, my, my, my dad and my mom um, helped really, they were a big part of uh, Christ Church for, for years, really kind of transitioning that to what it is uh, today, church down in East Greenwich. And um, they, that was the community that sent us uh, as a church five years ago. We're about five years old. And so in, in some funny way, not only are they the, the father and mother of, of me, but in a lot of ways of this church. Um, which is really awesome to have them here. And so I, I just wanted to take a second and just, I love you guys. And I'm, and I'm going to talk about dad for a little bit, mom. Um, but I just want to, I want to make sure that I let you know that this blazer is for you. And my mom specifically asked me to not wear ripped jeans on Christmas Eve, which you think wouldn't be that hard, but I was like, those are my favorite jeans. Um, so I didn't wear them. And so many people thank you. Um, uh, my mom is who I am, uh, I am most, most like, like a, a beautiful, oh, I'm not beautiful, but just a person of, a person of, of just great um, justice and care and compassion. But I want to take a moment today to talk about my father. Um, I don't know what your relationship was like with your parents, but for me, when I look back, I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of trust of my parents. I, I trusted them. And a lot of times, I know for folks, when you get to the adult age, you look back and you go, oh, man, there was a lot of, uh, there's some lack of integrity and lack of promises that were kept. And I, my parents weren't, weren't perfect. My, I'm sure they, they said things and did things that weren't the best. But I look back as a whole and I go, there was, there was like integrity and there was, I, I realized I grew up in an environment where I could trust them. And there's something about trust that does something to us. My, my dad, it, it, part of it was my dad's like an information collector. He, he, he's always gathering information, always reading, always in his study, much to my mother's chagrin. But he's, 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 he's learning and taking things in and exploring and trying to make sense of things. And so there was something about my dad where I felt like... Um, when I would engage him with questions, though, I look back and I don't remember many times where he was heavy-handed. He was very Socratic, which basically just means he, he would always kind of come back and ask me questions. When I would come with doubts or questions, whether it was about you know, sports or it was about theology, there's a lot of God talk in my house growing up. My father's a pastor. So I would come with these questions, and, and it never was, you, you, here's what to think. It was always, Here, here's, what I've, here's what I've learned. Here's what I've explored. Maybe this. It wasn't lack of guidance or direction, but so often there was a lightness to it. But in that, I always knew or always had a sense that my dad, like, in the back of his mind was, like, had the answer. I remember this one time where I was watching. Anyone remember the horror film Stigmata? You knew you were going to get a reference to Stigmata on Christmas Eve. Welcome to church. Anyone remember that movie? It's kind of awesome. I was a big fan of the, like, pseudo, you know, like the historical fiction stuff. So it comes to the end of this movie. I'm not going to explain the plot. <laughs> it's not that great. But it comes to the end, and then it drops this bomb. It's like, doo -doo -doo. Uh, it's all about the gospel of, of, of Thomas, which is this gospel that wasn't included in the Bible, an account of Jesus that wasn't included in the Bible. And it's like the Catholic Church for years kept this down. And there's all this, and it kind of ends with this, like, big moment, like this scandalous thing that basically the gospel of Thomas just says, 
you know, we're all gods or something like that, which it doesn't really say. But it ends with this sense of aura. And I'm like, I finished watching this movie. I was, I was clearly old enough to watch the movie and young enough to not know anything about the Gospel of Thomas, though I don't know much about it now. And I'm just, I get to the end of the movie and I go, oh my gosh. Like my faith was sort of rattled for a minute. Dad, 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 dad. I go over to my dad. I'm like, dad. And I'm explaining the plot to this movie and unpacking everything. I show him the end of the movie. And in my mind's eye, at least my memory, this is how my dad responded. It was something like this. He's like, wow. Yeah. Wait, hold on. And he goes over to his bookshelf, just pulls a copy of the Gospel of St. Thomas, and just hands it to me. He's like, I have it. And it and my dad's not a sarcastic guy or anything like that, but that's just how it played in my head. But I remember I'm just being like, oh. But my point is, like, I, he, could be, he could be trusted. There's something about, like, the, the, the way in which he responded to things that always was like, oh, I, I, can, I can throw this out at my dad. Uh, my, my mom would often get upset when my sister, who um, was going through a season, as many kids often do at 15 to 18, and uh, I love you, Catherine, and going through, like, a, a season where, um, you know, she was interacting with mom in a, in a relatively hostile way. I'm being as neutral as I can. In the evening service, I'll be more honest about these stories. And, um, and, and, and I remember my mom getting upset with my dad, saying, like, you know, Lyle, like, why don't you do something? Why don't you step in and correct your daughter? And I remember this is, we had this conversation years later, and my dad told us that, you know what? I always knew that give it, like, 12 hours... Catherine, my sister, will be on the couch with mom. They'll be crying and saying sorry, and everything will be okay. And if I step in now, I'm going to probably mess everything up. I just remember thinking, like, wow. Wow. Hearing stories of the way my dad has engaged with, like, really, like, aggressive people. And then the way he would engage in just sort of this non-confrontational and yet peacemaking way so often. There was something about my dad seeing him handle things with poise and patience. I, I, I realized looking back, I could, I could trust my dad. My dad was at every, every game. I could trust, I could trust him. And this produced this sort of rest that we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Trust produces rest. And the kind of rest that, at least in our home, again, if you grew up in a home where Christmas morning was something special, magical, and safe, and I realize not everyone was. But if you did, there's that moment where you wake up, no matter what age, and you go down and you see the tree, and it kind of looks brand new with all the presents underneath it. My parents wouldn't put the, the gifts under the tree until Christmas morning. And we would go, and we would look at the tree, and we would sit there, and everyone's just in their sweatpants. I mean, to this day, I've told this story before. At the end of Christmas Eve service tonight, at 7.31, when that service ends, I will put sweatpants on. They will just magically descend. I will somehow become unshowered. I will go to my parents' house and the parents' house of my, my wife, and I will lay upon the couch with cinnamon buns all over for a whole week, and that will just be my existence it, it, there's something about Christmas morning that produces just a, a rest. You let your hair down. You don't put your makeup on on Sunday morning, I don't think, on Christmas Eve, Christmas morning. <laughs> Sweatpants. The Christmas story should produce this sort of rest in us because it, it, it hearkens to a God who we can trust. 
So first of all, the Christmas story begins in a weird place. It begins um, by people who are under power telling the story. Most history, we know this, right, is told from the people who have power. That's why things like revisionist history are a popular trend right now, because we're trying to get at what really happened, because history is often told by those who in power. And yet one of the most popular dominant narratives in the entire world that has shaped the likes of so many greats, from St. Augustine to Nelson Mandela to Martin Luther King, you know the list. This, this story, this narrative, this Christmas story was told by those under power. It starts with a, with a, a teenage girl who's a refugee who no one can believe kind of her in regards to her sexual history. And she needs money from the wealthy to survive. Maybe a relevant story to now. The story starts with a refugee teenage girl who pens lines like this. I mean, I love the Christmas tree and the snow falling. But that verse we sang, like, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Right? These are rage against the machine lines. Right? This is not so much Frosty the Snowman. This is Mary uh, in, her, in her poem. She writes, he has shown strength with his arm, talking about God, realizing that God has done something in her He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their homes and exalted those of humble estate. God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This is the main, one of the main parts of the Christmas story. And so the setup for this story is unrest. The setting that this story is told into, the reason why Mary pens lines like that is because there is an ache of these people who were told they were going to be a blessing to the world, this Jewish people. This tribe was called to be a blessing to the world. That God was going to establish his kingdom through the person of David, this sort of like politician meets warrior meets rock star. You have Abraham in the ancient text, who's told that, that he's going to be a blessing to the, all his descendants are going to be a blessing to the, the whole world. There's this anticipation of the Messiah, which is to mean Savior. When is he going to come? Many have commented that the recent insurgence of superhero films over the last 10, 15 years lines up with when stories of superheroes or, or warriors or people who come in and save everybody, it always happens in times of great despair and existential angst is when these stories have emerged through history. It's funny it's happening again. Is the, the Marvel Universe responding to the ache of the world. But there was an anticipation for the Messiah, so the stories were being told. There was an anticipation that the king would come again and put everything right. There was an anticipation that we were supposed to be a blessing to the world, and is this going to happen again? And yet God had been silent. These people had this deep sense of shame and guilt that they had messed everything up because it had been a thousand years of defeat and shame and humiliation from the time roughly of David to now. It had been 400 years since a prophet had spoken. I was going to take time, I don't have time this morning to go back through some of the history points, but you look back at, at the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans. I mean, artifacts that we keep finding of the way that these empires destroyed the Jewish people that line up with what we read in Scripture. Of They were unfaithful and they continue to be. They perceived all of this dominance from these outside empires as 
We've failed. We've missed it. We haven't held up our end of the bargain. God made a covenant with us to be a blessing to the world, to be a just people, to care for the poor and the unrighteous, to be faithful, to have no other God before. We've, we've missed it. We've missed it. We've missed it. If none of this means anything to you, if you have ever been afraid, you know the Christmas story. If you've ever wondered where God is, you know the Christmas story. If you've ever lost hope, you know the Christmas story. If you've ever lost hope in government, you know the Christmas story. If you've ever felt shame, you know the Christmas story. And all of this ache, there was a driving question of this group of people. Can God actually be trusted? Is he good? Has he abandoned us? Will he put it back together? Can he be trusted? Can he be trusted? Will we ever hear of the rest that was promised to David in 2 Samuel again? Will we ever hear that rest? And into all the story, into, into all of this begins the story of a teenage girl. This is how, Matthew 1, 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So they would have been pledged to be married between the ages roughly of 12 to 14 legally. A year, they would be legally betrothed, but not living together. So they're in the sixth month of this year, this in-between time, and during this time, she gets pregnant. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. It's interesting that he decides to drop that in. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Remember, this is a whole nation with a profound sense of guilt profound sense of guilt and awareness of their sin. They understand how broken the world really is. They, they, they're singing the heartache songs, the depressing songs. A profound sense of shame and humiliation. The sense of not living up to their calling. You ever had a sense that you're not living up to your calling? You ever had a parent wanted to remind you of you not living up to their version of their calling. Out of this, the line, Jesus will save his people. These people understand that it's about them, a community, and not just an individual. And so then in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Can you say Emmanuel? Can you say Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he gave him the name Jesus. There's just two names. I love these two names. This preaches for days. Jesus and Emmanuel. Jesus, the Greek version of the Jewish name Yeshua, which is two words put together. One is Yah, which is the Hebrew word for God, and then Shua, which means saves. God saves. It's a sentence. He gives him the name. God saves. 
And the second is Emmanuel, God with us. These were the driving questions of the Jews in their day. What do we do with the guilt and shame of our mistakes? We were supposed to be the people of God. We were supposed to be a light of the world. We could translate this in all sorts of ways. The, the enlightenment was supposed to fix everything. We we're supposed to be smarter than this. How did this happen? How of these things? It must be everyone else's fault. Except there, was, right, there were people in, in this tribe who believed it was all the sinner's fault. And so they cut the world up into black and white. There's the Pharisees and the religious folk who said, no, it's all them. And there were others who said, no, 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 it's all them. This is why God hasn't come back. This is why the Romans are oppressing us. This is why, you can see why stories like this stay alive forever. If you're someone who's here and you have a hard time believing any of this, you can at least see why these stories still have resonance in our culture because they seem to repeat themselves. They seem to still be true. If you've ever experienced failure, you understand the story. This is how these people feel. Yeshua, Messiah, is to come and forgive them for all the ways that they've blown it. All the ways that they've blown it. I think you could argue that these two names tap into the longing of every single human being everywhere. The reason we continue to celebrate Christmas and all of the lines and all the traffic and all of the ugly decorations, why do we keep doing this? And I think there's something that taps into us whether we are religious or not. Yeshua, because we wanna know, can everything be put back together again? Can we get another shot? Most of us, I've never met a person who didn't have some profound sense of I'm not everything that I could be, whether it's a failure to love or to serve or to, to live up to this internal sense of, of calling. And Jesus comes and we're told it's about the forgiveness of sins, that he will save people from their sins. The name of Jesus, you know, you know what that name is? Jesus, Yeshua, it's a blank slate. It's a new start. Sounds nice. That's what we all kind of clamor for on January 1st, right? It's a new day. How many of you do? How many of you love the idea of your past following you wherever you go? How many of you have a past? Anybody? How many of you would love the idea of a fresh start to trust that that was actually true? In our culture, the Christmas story, I think, continues to carry weight because it holds out hope. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's something in us that longs to know that we can be reconciled. For, for many of us who believe in, in God, it's reconciled to our creator. Or maybe it's just a sense of how things are supposed to be. Like there's a, there's a desire for like a forgiveness that would extend across lines. And the second name, Emmanuel. Again, the story amongst the Jews right now is where is God. I'm not sure what you're going through, but that may be your question this Christmas. Where is God? This is not how the story is supposed to go. So many of us caught up in like the, the political tensions around us. Many of us are screaming out, where is God? This whole thing has fallen apart. God, where are you? Christmas answers this question. I'm with you. In the midst of the brokenness, you're not alone. The God that weeps alongside the broken things of this world. 
And so the angst that you feel that there might not be a greater story, that there might not be a redemptive arc to the universe, that there might be no greater meaning in life feels too much to bear. And I think it feels too much to bear because, well, as a, as a Christian, I would humbly submit you were never meant to bear it. You are bearing a story of fiction. And that deep down, you know that. My voice gets whispery when I make profound points. <laughs> Christmas story speaks to the reality of God who works within human history to put it all back together. This is the God who works within. This is the story of the beginning of God putting the world back together. Let me give you an example because that always feels so abstract. Well, if he started to put it all back together, I'm celebrating what he's done, but he's ultimately going to do something, and heaven's kind of breaking in now, and this all feels a lot. I, I, I heard a, read a story the other day that was helpful for me. In the Atlantic, um, it's a story about Winston Marsalis. Anyone know who Winston Marsalis is? One of the most phenomenal jazz players. If you have some like bandwidth or, or financial means to get down to New York City and go and see him play, oh my Lord, it is just magic, magic. You, if you're not a follower of Jesus, go and see him play jazz and then you'll become a follower of Jesus. You'll get it. Everything will make sense. So there's a story of this one writer who's wandering down in the summer. The summer in New York City gets really weird. There's just not a lot of people around. There's not a lot happening. The city kind of empties out. And so he goes down to this club in the East Village called the Village Vanguard, which I've been to. It's this amazing little place, and it's kept its reputation as this sort of edgy jazz club. And so it's the middle of summer, and he goes in, and there's this band playing. There's not that many people there. They're kind of disengaged. And he looks up, and he sees this person who's got his back. He's playing trumpet, and his back is sort of to the audience. And he's, he sounds amazing. And he's like, that looks like a heavier, older version of Winston Marsalis. Is that Winton? Winton. What did he say? Winston? Winton. And so he's playing, he, and, he, and he starts looking closer. And all of a sudden, he comes a little bit closer to the front of the stage. A little bit front of the, closer, front of the stage. And he goes, oh, my. That is actually Winton Marsalis. He looks up and he starts playing this beautiful solo. And he's like, what is he doing in the middle of the summer in this tiny little jazz club playing with this no-name band to a bunch of people who are not engaged at all? And the more he starts playing this solo and jumping into this part, people start to be drawn in and drawn in. And it's that moment, if you're a jazz listener, where you just start to close your eyes and like, it just feels, everything feels like magic. And then all of a sudden, a phone goes off. And it's like loud as a small little club. And it just snaps the room out of its space. Wrecks the set. Worst is, in the article, the writer says the person took the call. Winston had lost, Winton had lost the room. Moments pass. And this is the genius of this moment. All of a sudden, he starts playing the note of the ring. Like, that's my trumpet impression, pretty good. <laughs> he starts playing it and playing it and then kind of going off on it, changing keys, improvising around it, and keep returning to it, returning to it. And all of a sudden, slowly, the writer describes the room, laughs, and then sort of begins to come back. He kind of woos them back as he continues the song. This is what Jesus is like. 
He comes into the middle of human culture and steps in incognito as one of us, and he begins to woo us back. He begins to play that note that sounds familiar and bring us back in. He comes among us and does not force us, for he is a God of love, but he woos and redeems the broken. Emmanuel and Jesus, Yeshua, two names that remind us that God can be trusted. Because this is what God has been up to all along. Saving and redeeming and being present among us. The Christmas story reminds us that God keeps his promises. These people had been waiting and aching, longing for God to begin to put this back together. And though he came in a way that most did not expect, he came in a way that, I don't know, like went and walking into the club and slowly playing in the back and wooing his people to himself. The Christmas story shows us what God is like. It's the story of God revealing his full nature. What is he like? He's the God who's present with us and is making all things new. Someone who comes to your level, someone who's transparent, someone who's honest with you, someone who is not domineering, someone who comes and says, come with me. Let me show you what I am like. Someone who has, who has said over and over, like my dad to me, if you don't do this, you're going to get in trouble. And yet over and over has abounding grace and forgiveness and love who steps in for me when I can't be faithful. Someone who gives grace and undeserved, unmerited favor. Someone like that can be trusted. Someone who's, who's real with you. Jesus says in the Gospels that things will be hard. I'm doing something in the world. Things are going to be difficult. You can trust me, though. Trust comes from somewhere. It comes from promises kept and integrity proven. And so as followers of Jesus, we open this thing up, this Bible up, and we look back at the times over and over and over that God has kept his promises and proven faithful. I don't even have to look that far back. I can look back at 50 years ago, Dr. King gave a sermon on this Sunday about peacemaking and inspired a nation in using the Christmas story, using tapping into this story because this story has this sense of truth. It can be, it can be trusted and began to inspire a nation to move beyond its racist roots or to begin that journey at least. We can look back on Easter Sunday, years before that of Nelson Mandela getting up and giving this emphatic call to the power of the resurrection, this story of Jesus that can be trusted and seeing how Jesus has used that to change a nation. I don't even have to look so epic. I can look back at the last year in the lives of my friends and family and seeing God put things back together and save in a way that no matter how clever I can get, I can't think of any other reason other than Jesus of why these things have been put back together. So we can look back at this. We can look back at recent history. Many of us can look back in our own lives and say, oh my, here's a God who can be trusted. 
Here's a God who can be trusted. Christmas, I'll just put me in here. Christmas reminds me that God can be trusted. And trust for me brings with it a kind of rest that we all long for. A rest in knowing that dad can be trusted. There's a rest in knowing that dad can be trusted. John Stott puts it like this. A Christian's freedom from anxiety is not due to some guaranteed freedom from trouble. But what it is freedom from is to the folly of worry and especially to the confidence that God is our father and he keeps his promises. The Christian's freedom from anxiety is not due to some guaranteed freedom from trouble, but to the folly of worry and especially to the confidence that God is our father. He keeps his promises.